voter apathy is going to kill Joe Biden's chance of re-election in 2024. What's interesting, you see a lot of people searching a little bit. Some saying, I'm not necessarily for Donald Trump. I might entertain a third party. Again, people not liking their choices. How worried are you about black voters showing up for President Biden in November? Well, I'm not worried. I'm very concerned. Voter apathy is going to be the biggest issue in 2024 people feeling like ah, oh, i don't care about that rematch like i'm not going out to vote for either one of them trump or biden neither what if you get biden trump again probably not vote no one is excited about the 2024 election the vast majority of americans don't want either of the guys that will likely be running at the top of the democratic and republican tickets they're old they're out of touch We've been here before and we didn't want it then either. The one difference is that as one of these guys racks up more and more baggage, his base supports him more rapidly than ever before. While the other one has had four extra years of baggage that has mainly lost him support, especially in key demographics. And the fissures within the Democratic voter base have only gotten deeper as the genocide in Gaza has continued with US support, despite widespread condemnation, both domestically and internationally. So instead of focusing on what the fuck is going on with Republicans, let's Let's do a little navel-gazing today to talk about what divides the Democratic Party going into the 2024 election and what can be done about it. And later in the video, we'll discuss whether or not you even have a moral obligation to vote at all. This is why Democrats don't want Biden, but we'll vote for him anyway. Roll the intro. my partner on today's video, PDS Debt. Credit card debt sucks. I have been buried under more credit card debt than I care to admit to, and now it feels like everything is costing more these days, from bananas to shampoo to electronics, and many people are at the point where they're buying the same things that they always buy, but have to put some of that on credit cards just to get by. That can add up easily, and those debts can really weigh on you and feel like you will never get out from underneath them. PDS Debt can help. PDS Debt has customized 0% interest options for anyone struggling with credit cards, personal loans, collections, or medical bills. They offer multiple programs and solutions tailored to your specific needs, budget, and financial goals, and they have a team of people ready to help you with your debt journey. PDS Debt is offering a free debt analysis. It only takes 30 seconds. Head over to pdsdebt.com Miller to get your free debt assessment today. You'll receive a full breakdown on how to save on interest each month and the quickest way to take care of your debt. Everyone with over $10,000 in debt qualifies, and there's no minimum credit score required. PDS Debt rolls all of your payments into one low 0% interest monthly payment so you can save thousands in interest and fees. If you're making payments every month on your debt, but your balances just won't seem to go down, this program is for you. So to take advantage of PDS Debt's free debt analysis just for my viewers, go to pdsdebt.com Miller to complete the quick and easy debt assessment in just 30 seconds. That's pdsdebt.com Miller. Thanks, PDS Debt. A poll taken in early 2023 found that 73% of respondents didn't think Biden should run for re-election, including 52% of Democrats. Their top complaint? He's too old. He'll be 82 at election time this November and 86 by the end of his tenure. Reminder that the average life expectancy for white men in America is 73. And Biden is the oldest president we've ever had. Only a quarter of Americans believe he has the stamina and sharpness to serve his position as president effectively. Biden's approval rating hovers around 39%. And a poll from just this past December found that more Republicans would be satisfied with having Trump as their nominee than Democrats would be with Biden as their nominee. That same 
same poll found that still nearly half of Democrats are either dissatisfied with Biden as the nominee or don't care at all. One in five respondents said they would be neither satisfied nor dissatisfied. This is telling. That means 20% of voters who are engaged enough to bother to respond to a political poll still feel incredibly apathetic about the prospect of Joe Biden on their ticket. And listen, this makes sense. The optics aren't great. His speeches are hardly rousing or inspiring so much as hard to follow. It feels like waiting for your grandpa to finish his story so you can start Christmas dinner. The good work he has accomplished, including passing massive infrastructure and historic climate change bills, despite a Congress more divided and contentious than it's ever been, isn't well publicized and is overshadowed both by the optics of his presidency and the actions he's taken domestically related to immigration and military aggressions abroad, actions that many in his base have deemed unforgivable. However, while it is the case that most of the country feels incredibly lackluster about the upcoming election, the largest animating motive behind Democratic poll respondents is not to have a candidate who necessarily represents their views, but instead to have one that can win the general election. This is also telling. Presidential elections, arguably more than other elections, are more about beating the other guy than about actual issues and political platforms. And the one thing that apparently a majority of Democrats can agree on is that there is only one guy who has proven he can beat Trump, presuming Trump will be the Republican nominee. And that's Joe Biden. Whether he can do it again is another story, though. An NBC News poll from November showed that Biden was in lockstep with Trump for support from voters aged 18 to 34, a considerable drop from the 2020 election when Biden had a huge margin over Trump in that same age demographic. Other polling finds that only 17% of Arab Americans support Biden, a dramatic fall from the 2020 election when Biden had the support of the vast majority of Arab Americans. This is consequential in important swing states like Michigan, where Arab Americans make up 5% of the vote and Biden won by 2.8 percentage points in 2020. And these numbers were likely vastly different prior to October 2023. Many Democrats share similar feelings about hot-button issues like abortion, trans rights, immigration reform, and access to affordable health care. Of course, many centrist Democrats feel that progressives are too extreme, trying to move too fast, or don't actually represent their interests, but Democrats usually can typically agree on at least general stances on major issues. Then the October 7th attack by Hamas happened, and Israel began its all-out war on Gaza, murdering 10 tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians with impunity while they tried to flee for their lives, destroying learning institutions, mosques, hospitals, and cutting off access to basic necessities like food and water. The world has watched in horror as Israel has committed war crimes against innocent, trapped civilians for the last 124 days. And many countries have come forward to condemn the violence and push back against the Israeli government. Opinion polls show that most Americans are in support of a ceasefire and an end to Israel's war in Gaza. A Reuters poll found that 68% of respondents believed Israel should call a ceasefire and negotiate an end to the war, with 77% of Democrats agreeing with that sentiment. And yet, if you looked at our representatives in Washington, you'd think they were living in an alternate reality. Despite gently suggesting a ceasefire and asking Israel nicely that it may be trying not to kill so many innocent civilians, Biden has largely stood behind the far-right Israeli government, completely in opposition to the opinion of the vast majority of Democratic voters. But it's not just Biden. In December, the House passed a Republican resolution that equates anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. 95 Democrats voted for the resolution. Another 92 Democrats voted present, meaning they neither supported nor or opposed the resolution. Only 13 Democrats voted against this resolution. A reminder that roughly 70% of the polled population thinks there should be a ceasefire and is opposed to the current actions of the Israeli government. When ceasefire protesters congregated outside Capitol Hill, Democratic Senator John Fetterman waved an Israeli flag at the protesters, earning him praise in an article on Breitbart News. Yikes. 
In November, a large pro-Israel protest was attended by top congressional Democrats, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who led chants of, I stand with Israel, with the crowd regularly shouting out, no ceasefire. An article quoted Fetterman and Congressman Richie Torres praising Biden and saying those who demand a ceasefire were just on the fringes of society. I guess 70% is fringe now. It's the gaslighting, for me, that our elected representatives are telling us that calling for a ceasefire is radical and fringe when the vast majority of us are doing it? These people need to be pushed out of office or off a building. As New York State Representative Zoran Mandani said, I don't know how this demand is characterized as something that is far left. This is the most mainstream demand in America today on foreign policy. And while typically foreign policy is rarely a hot button issue that gets people to the polls and affects general elections, in the way that domestic issues like abortion and healthcare do, this is different. This is a genocide being publicly streamed on every social media platform for all to see, perpetrated by an already controversial U.S. ally, condemned by nearly the entire rest of the world, and yet our leaders are sitting atop Capitol Hill cheering them on. This is only deepening the divide that everyday Americans feel between themselves and their elected officials in Washington, especially since 2016, especially since COVID made it very, very clear how money runs the show around here while the rest of us are just down here clamoring for it. That our representatives representatives are now attending rallies supporting literal genocide and telling us we're extremists for calling for a ceasefire? That's a bridge too far. And it likely means that there will be a ton more single-issue voters, depending on what happens between now and November, for whom Biden's actions or inaction relating to this conflict is decisive enough not to vote for him. And that's exactly what's happening. In December, several Muslim American leaders in several decisive states pledged that they would rally their communities against Biden because of his stance on Israel, launching the Abandon Biden campaign to call for group opposition to the president. Leaders cited third-party candidates, Cornell West and Jill Stein, who have both openly called for a ceasefire in Gaza and condemned Israel's occupation of Palestine as potential presidential alternatives. Muslim leaders were clear that they didn't support Trump, but they felt that denying Biden these votes was their strongest means to shape U.S. policy. And like I said, their lack of support for Biden in key swing states like Michigan could be decisive in 2024. But the reality is that absent successful third-party candidates, and believe me, I will make a whole separate video about third-party candidates. Comment below if that's something that you want to see. Absent third-party candidates, the only option besides Trump is Biden. Sure, Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips have been in the running to be the Democratic nominee, but they didn't even meet the threshold to make it on the ballot in some states. And even in New Hampshire, where they were on the ballot and Biden wasn't even listed, Biden still won 62% of the vote via write-ins. So why is it that, despite the fact that most Democratic voters are dissatisfied or disinterested in Biden's candidacy, that he's our only option? Why is no one seriously opposing him? Well, the short answer is that it doesn't make much political sense. There hasn't been a single Democratic president who didn't win re-election since the Civil War, except for Jimmy Carter. In 1980, Jimmy Carter was running for re-election and Ted Kennedy opposed him as the potential Democratic nominee. Many political historians blame that standoff for pulling Carter's policy positions further to the left than many of his base, especially in the South, were willing to go, making the alternative, Ronald Reagan, a more attractive option. It always comes down to Reagan. The reality is that a bid to replace Biden as the Democratic nominee would create a messy intra-party battle that the DNC and party leaders don't want to risk. For them, Biden beat Trump once so he can do it again. Not to mention the fact that the deadline to enter the primary race has passed in most states at this point. So strategically for the DNC, Biden is the only option. And for his would-be big-name competitors, those who have enough clout to even have a chance at winning the nomination over him, like Gavin Newsom, for example, it doesn't make strategic sense for them to do that either. 
First of all, they're all Biden allies who stood behind him in his 2020 presidential bid. Second of all, challenges to sitting presidents have historically been based on ideological challenges. Eugene McCarthy ran against LBJ's Vietnam War policy in 1968. Ted Kennedy was pushing for the Democratic Party to move further left against Jimmy Carter. It's not really normal for a president to be challenged by one of his allies, of which Biden has many because of his decades in Congress. Of course, today, with the outcry over Biden's stance on Gaza, there may be a reason for someone to challenge him on that ideological basis, but again, it's too late to enter the race at this point. And many of Biden's would-be challengers have their sights set on 2028 instead. Gavin Newsom has stood behind Biden and even agreed to debate Ron DeSantis, even though it didn't really make a ton of sense, likely in a bid to increase his national reputation so there's solid name recognition come the 2028 presidential election. He'd shoot himself in the foot if he tried to run against Biden now, not only because he's an ally, but also because Newsom would likely lose, which would harm his reputation, and he'd run afoul of the Democratic establishment to whom he must appeal if he wants the nomination in 2028. And we could talk all day about morally whether that's good or bad, but in American politics, it's all about optics and strategy. And it doesn't make sense for someone who genuinely wants to be the president to try to run for president against Biden right now. Not to mention the fact that every incumbent president in the last half century who faced a primary challenger ended up still winning their party's nomination, but then going on to lose the general election. It happened to Carter, it happened to George H.W. Bush, it could happen to Biden. A challenge to the sitting president from within his own party creates chaos and fissures within the party, often making the sitting president seem weaker come general election day. This would then lead whoever ran against Biden in the primary to likely be blamed by the Democratic establishment and the voting public for the victory of Donald Trump. So even though there is a large percentage of Democratic voters who want someone besides Biden, and it would be nice to have more of a primary challenger so that we could have bigger discussions and challenge each other on our stances within the Democratic Party, the reality at this point in the game, but even before now, when someone could have feasibly entered the race, is that from a strategic standpoint, for someone whose long game is to stay in politics, it doesn't make sense and the risks are too great. Okay, so that's the reality we're living in. Biden doesn't have any challengers that pose a genuine threat, and from a strategic standpoint from within the Democratic establishment, that makes sense. But the fact still stands that he is the oldest president we've ever had and seems a bit feeble to say the least. That's not to say no one has ever won the presidency under similar circumstances. During Reagan's re-election campaign, the roles were reversed. Reagan's age was starting to affect his leadership. He'd often go into long rants about space and aliens, called his own cabinet members by the wrong names, and generally stumbled over his words and misspoke. That wasn't enough to keep him from winning the presidency for a second term, despite his opponents leaning into criticizing his age. So maybe Biden can win, but what if he kicks the bucket? meets his maker, vacates his earthly meat prison. Then what? Of course, Kamala Harris is next in command for now, but that doesn't make her the clear choice for the Democratic nomination if Biden croaks. Biden leaving the race at this stage would create chaos, and depending on when it happened, there aren't clear rules for how to proceed. Any of the 10 or so people who would probably jump in to try to replace Biden in the power vacuum wouldn't be able to get their names on the primary ballots as deadlines have passed in most states. This would likely require a legal process to get deadlines changed or push the selection process back to August at the Democratic National Convention, where the nominee is decided. Since the 1970s, that process has been pretty straightforward, with each delegate voting for the nominee based on the results of the state primary. But without any primaries, we'd go back to pre-1970 processes of backroom deals and delegate switching. The August Democratic Party Convention would be historical and likely a bit of a clusterfuck. And because individual delegates would be given so much power over deciding who would run for president, there would likely be a mad rush of people trying to be selected to be delegates so they could go swing their dick around at the convention 
convention, because presidential hopefuls would then have to court every delegate to get the nomination. If Biden makes it to the convention in August, but then keels over before the election, the decision of who would be nominated would become even less small-d Democratic, as it would likely be left in the hands of DNC leaders. And if Biden wins the election, but then dies after the Electoral College officially votes him in on December 17th, then the presidency passes to the vice president as normal. Given that this is a very real possibility, frankly for both presidents, given what we know about Trump's diet and the fact that Trump isn't much younger than Biden, it's important to know what would happen if one of them shits the cosmic bed between now and the 2025 inauguration. Mainly chaos, but not the end times kind. Okay, so them's the breaks. Biden will be the Democratic nominee barring his untimely demise. But most people don't want that, and many are unenthused about voting for him or outright refuse to, and we'll talk about whether you should in a minute. So what could Biden do at this point to win people back and get them excited to show up to vote for him? Well, I'm not sure if there's anything he could do to get people excited at this point, but to get them to show up and vote for him over Trump or over not voting at all, I don't think would be terribly complicated at this point. He needs to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. It aligns with what the vast majority of his base wants and is not a particularly radical stance, though I'm sure it seems like one from within the chokehold that Israel has on our politicians. According to many poll respondents, he needs to cancel the student debt he promised us too. The thing about that, though, is the Supreme Court blocked his way for the massive sweeping forgiveness we were all looking for. So his administration has spent the last few years finding other ways to slowly cancel debt that go around the Supreme Court's ruling. It's less flashy, less obvious, and doesn't exactly fulfill what he promised us. But the reality is that three 3.7 million Americans have received some form of loan canceling, totaling about $136 billion in aid. And higher education experts have said that Biden has done more to implement student loan forgiveness than any previous president. It's not the $400 billion he promised us, but his campaign could be doing more to promote the work they're doing to fulfill those promises in the face of political and legal opposition. His campaign could be doing more, period. A recent TikTok from Imani, aka Crushes and Spice, pointed out that if you go to the Biden campaign website, it asks for a lot of donations and then presents zero information about the issues. Nothing. But also, so many job postings? Like, they have barely gotten their shit off the ground. The White House website does lay out the issues, but the fact that he's hardly put any effort behind campaigning is indicative of how little he's doing to communicate the good he is doing. At least not in a way that will actually reach people. No one's gonna go to whitehouse.gov and say, hmm, I wonder what Biden's doing for me. Let me click around for the next half hour to decipher. But I guess maybe that's just because according to his campaign website, he's still looking for most of his communications and social media teams. And when I looked at the job post for director of social communications, not only are they looking for someone with 10 plus years of experience, but that person also needs a point of view of how we campaign in the hyper-fragmented, vertical video-driven social media moment of today. The listing goes on to say, we also need someone who recognizes that social media is not just a Gen Z thing. It's a core way we talk to all of our key audiences. If you think malarkey is a red flag, if your Roman Empire is the fight to protect democracy, or you realize that the sentence is itself proof that we need help here, we want to talk to you. Okay. Self-aware, I guess. But then it goes on to say, please do not tell us that we need a Taylor Swift strategy. We are tracking. I don't even know what that means. It's like they, they really want to be cool, but they refuse to hire someone young enough to actually make them cool. Like, pick a lane. Do you want to talk to Gen Xers who still post boomerangs on Instagram? Or do you want to reach Gen Z, who are the ones most bored and or opposed to what you're doing? Because this language will appeal to neither of them. 
politics is PR and Biden is doing a trash job at it. But that in itself is the nature of politics, especially in a two-party system that's more divided than ever. If Biden tries to appeal to those calling for a ceasefire, which are the majority of his base, he risks losing support from the wealthiest in his base, who tend to have a larger voice because money buys political clout in this country. Everything he does is too leftist for some people and not leftist enough for others. So he has to toe the line and make no one happy. The same cannot be said for Trump, who has managed to ride the populism wave straight to fascist town on top of the fact that, as one article described it, Trump's narcissism has a childlike quality that does not register as old. And his lack of concern with making any sense or following a train of logic frees him from having to pause or stumble over his words. He doesn't have to toe the line because he crossed it long ago and brought enough of his party along with him that he doesn't have to give a shit about appealing to anyone else. So can Biden win back enough people to get the turnout necessary for him to be elected? The jury's still out, but he's got a lot of work to do. And then we finally arrive at the final question. No matter what Biden does in the next 10 months, there are many people who he's lost permanently, lately mostly because of his stance on Israel, but also because of apathy, disinterest, and disillusionment with politics generally. So let's talk about voting and whether you have an obligation or a moral duty to vote at all. First, the reasons why people on the left may not vote for Biden include political apathy, the people who say, I'm not really interested in politics, it's too inconvenient, my vote doesn't count, so why bother? Moral opposition, the people who say, what he's done supporting Israel at the border, etc., is unforgivable, and I refuse to cast my vote to elect someone who has supported those policies. I would rather vote for no one, or a third-party candidate. And political protest, the people who say, the only thing politicians care about is getting re-elected, so voicing opposition isn't enough. We have to refuse to vote in people who we do not agree with, or who do not listen to us. Only through this threat will we actually have political sway. And for some people, it's a little of all three. To be honest, I've generally been of the opinion that people have the obligation to vote because to not vote for Biden means a vote for Trump. And my opinion on that has changed or gotten a little bit more complicated recently. So let me tell you why. First, do people have a moral obligation to vote? Is there a rational argument behind not voting at all? Listen, I'm no philosopher, but I did find an extensive and interesting article from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on the ethics and rationality of voting, linked in the research document posted in our Patreon community. I'll give you some cliff notes. Basically, the rationality and moral imperative to vote depends on your goal in voting in the first place. If your goal in voting is to affect the outcome of the presidential election with your vote, you probably won't vote because that's not a rational choice. The likelihood of your vote affecting the outcome is nearly zero, unless you live in a state where the outcomes in the past have been incredibly close. Then it may still be rational to vote based solely on the goal of affecting the outcome. But if your goal in voting is to be an agent who has participated in causing a specific outcome, part of the large your cause, as opposed to being the individual cause, then perhaps voting makes more sense for you. You feel a part of something. It's not necessarily about whether your individual vote changed anything tangible. Voting can also be seen as an expressive activity, a way to show membership to a group or to demonstrate commitment to their political team. As the Stanford Encyclopedia puts it, sports fans who paint their faces in team colors do not generally believe that they as individuals will change the outcome of the game, but instead wish to demonstrate their commitment to their team. For some, that is what voting means to them. They vote and develop ideologies, according to Stanford, in order to signal to themselves and others that they are certain kinds of people. For example, suppose Bob wants to express that he is a patriot and a tough guy. He thus endorses hawkish military actions. Or for example, suppose Lindsay wants to communicate that she is a good person, so she posts on social media that she donated her money. In many ways, this is performative, sure, but it's also human nature, and it often plays a role in how and whether people choose to vote. Okay, so those are some reasons why someone may choose to vote or not vote, but do they have a duty to do so? Well, 
as we've established, it's incredibly unlikely that an individual vote will affect the outcome of an election. So a plausible argument in favor of a duty to vote has to identify a reason why people should vote, despite the fact that their individual vote doesn't matter. And if you think that people have a civic duty to vote, that begs the question of whether that civic duty is fully completed with voting, and even whether voting is the best way to achieve that civic duty. There are many ways to contribute civically that don't involve voting and that arguably have a greater impact. As Stanford puts it, if a citizen has a duty to be an agent who helps promote other citizens' well-being, it seems this duty could be discharged by volunteering, making art, or working at a productive job that adds to the social surplus. If a citizen has a duty to avoid complicity in injustice, it seems that rather than voting, she could engage in civil disobedience, write letters to newspaper editors, pamphlets, or political theory books, donate money, engage in conscientious abstention, protest, assassinate criminal political leaders, or do any number of other activities. It's unclear why voting is special or required. If a person is voting for the purpose of aiding and helping others, then they would at the very least need to be sufficiently well-informed to vote for the better candidate, a condition few voters meet. The Stanford article goes on and on and on, but the long story short is that there isn't a clear answer as to whether there is an obligation, ethical, moral, or otherwise, to vote, especially if that voter is ill-informed or impartial to the outcome. The best argument I could find is that voting is an essential part of a democracy, and so participating by voting is a means to show your support of democracy itself. But there are arguments against all of this. Who am I to sit here and tell a Palestinian American, or anyone for that matter, that voting for Joe Biden is a vote in favor of democracy itself, while he supports an anti-democratic regime actively committing genocide? And who am I to say that you need to vote in order to fulfill your civic duty when there are arguably more effective ways to promote democracy or improve the well-being of others? Though I will say I am skeptical of the argument that threatening not to vote will sway public policy, except for when wealthy people who have bought the ear of our politicians do it. Until we get money out of our politics, nothing will ever have more sway than cold hard cash. For my part, I will likely still vote for Biden this November. Not proudly, or because I support him, but because I'm terrified of the alternative. I get that they're both generally bad, but have you seen my video on Project 2025? At least in the Democratic Party generally, there are still some people who don't want to completely upend our democracy. Maybe that's not a good enough reason for many people to vote for Biden, but I know it is reason enough for a lot of people. But I'm not going to say someone is wrong for feeling differently, because it's complicated. And with literally everything I talk about on this channel, it's not black and white. But what I do know is this. Presidential elections are not where real change happens. While Trump proved the power a president has to really fuck shit up, the person who runs for president and is in the White House generally has far less control over yours and my day-to-day -day life than they're painted out to have. And I think the big takeaway for me is that local work is more important than ever. Connecting with your neighbors, supporting their small businesses, providing mutual aid for members of your community where you can, volunteering on the campaigns for your local school board members and representatives, showing up to town halls and city council meetings and pushing for change that tangibly affects the lives of the people who live near you. Not only is that more effective, but your voice is also louder in those situations. Local government meetings are boring as hell. Show up and plead your case. Gather your friends and write some letters. Get involved in campaigns to get progressive local candidates elected. Find mutual aid networks in your area to join or create one yourself. When shit gets scary out there, we often forget to turn towards the people around us for support. This year's presidential election feels like an existential threat on both sides of the aisle. But I know personally when I focus on my community and the people around me, I feel a hell of a lot less hopeless. 
and that's where the real change actually happens. So what have we learned today? We've learned that the majority of Americans don't want to vote for Trump or Biden, mainly because they're old as dirt. Divisions in the Democratic Party are getting worse, especially related to Biden's and Democratic leaders' continued support for the genocide in Gaza. There are no legitimate challengers to Biden's nomination because politics are about PR and strategy, and no one with serious presidential aspirations wants to stick their neck out to run against Biden. Whether or not you have a moral duty to vote is not black and white and depends on your goals for voting. Focusing on what you can do locally in your own community has far greater impact than a single vote cast in a presidential election. Thank you to my Patreon community for sponsoring the research for this video. If you want more information and discussion, head over to my Patreon community where I'll be posting a special behind the episode deep dive video with commentary. You can also chat with me directly in our exclusive Patreon chat room, get early access to next week's video, exclusive live streams, and so much more. Your support helps to keep these videos free for everyone and further our mission towards legal and political education for all. Shout out to my newest patrons as well as my royal patrons and a very special shout out to my multi-platinum patrons, Joshua Cole, Thomas Johnson, Sophia Sams, Anthony Giles, and Brett Piantek. Your generosity makes this channel what it is. If you like this video, you'll also like my video about how political violence is ruining our democracy. Thanks so much for watching. Have a good day. Bye-bye.